podcast. Andrew Rosbaum here today along with Derek DeBoer and today we're going to talk about retaining walls and sitting walls and general landscape walls. And Derek, what are some situations that you might want a wall in your landscape? Yeah, there are a lot of different scenarios that might dictate whether you or not you need to build a retaining wall. And first and foremost, when you talk about any kind of a wall, it usually originates with some sort of need. You need that there, whether it's a structural wall that you'll build something else on or whether it's there for the retainment of the soil. So those are really the the primary purposes of constructing a wall. We need them to function properly. So if you look around at different sites, um, I think many there are many examples here because a lot of our neighborhoods are built on hillsides. And so you can look at a new constructed home in the process of that and see some of these processes going on that determine whether or not you need a, a wall in place. And the reason you would need that wall is a lot of times to, well, you look at the natural slope of the land and if you want more of a horizontal plane for something like a yard or a playground, you need to capture more of that horizontal area. And the only way you can do that is to make that vertical rise in a short amount of time. Sure. So you lessen that slope. Um, So that's an example of why you would need a retaining wall. So let's say in the backyard, you slope off pretty drastically after your house and you want to level that up for a play area or a yard. You're going to have to employ some sort of retaining wall so that you can make up that vertical difference in a short amount of time and thereby increasing your horizontal area. So that's an example of where you would need a retaining wall. And and sometimes that's closer to the house. Maybe the foundation of the house is such that you need to create a retaining wall just for the integrity of the foundation. But there's a bunch of different scenarios you can go through. And, And we're going to talk about patios at some point and maybe your patio in order to get that horizontal plane to build a patio on, you need a retaining wall to shore that up on the far end. So those are kind of the scenarios. Now you think about, um, let's just say you have a wheelbarrow full of sand and you go out into your driveway and you dump it. Well, that sand has a natural angle that it will pile up. Mm -hmm. So it falls away. All soils have that natural angle and it depends on their composition, whether it's mostly sand or mostly clay or mostly silt on that angle that it just naturally falls away. Now, a lot of our soils are made up of primarily clay, and so that acts a little bit different. But let's just look at, at that example. So we need to be able to change that natural angle of the soil, how it falls away naturally, and we can do that by employing this retaining wall. Let's switch to talking about maybe just a natural soil rather than sand. You dump that out, it falls away at its natural angle. Now, if you would go up to that pile of soil, and let's just say you take a piece of plywood and you put it vertically and you put soil behind it. And as you're putting soil behind it, you're stepping on it and compacting that in lifts, in layers, all the way to the top. Then you pull your plywood away. It's probably going to stay at that vertical angle. Your soil is going to stay in place. And that's because of the compaction behind it. So now you've changed the way that soil acts by using a retaining wall as the face and it won't slough away. So that's critical in, in installing a good solid retaining wall. A lot of times you think about a, a wall and you think of that wall being in place and that's really what's retaining the soil. But actually you're creating a system of soil behind the wall that is retaining itself. And that's just the face of the wall is really just the face of it. Now there are certain instances where you have a 
maybe a poured concrete wall and it has a heavy footing and it's all engineered and it actually has some counter leverage with the footing and how it's all tied together, that that is a physical barrier and it's bearing the weight of that soil. But when we're talking about the retaining walls that we use in landscaping, they're a little bit different. They're more engineered kind of on the ancient principles. You look at old retaining walls built out of field stone and those were built on the principle that the soil is compacted behind it in lifts and you're kind of changing how that system works. So in fact, you're actually having a column of retaining soil behind the face of that wall and that's what's holding that up. And the face of the wall, um, while it does have some weight and structural integrity and you can do some other things to, to help it hold that soil, it's really just the vertical face of that to help you hold it in lifts as you're working up. So that's kind of critical to understand when you're building one maybe at home. Maybe understand that you can't just pile the blocks up and then just dump soil behind it. You have to work in those layers and lifts and do some compacting so that that whole system works together. One of the things to kind of illustrate the example of, of why that's also important, I mentioned that our soils are largely clay here, mm-hmm. comprised mostly of clay in our, uh, in our Flint Hills here. And even the good soils, even the dark, deep uh, brown and black so- looking soils that have a lot of organic matter still have a lot of clay in them. So think about, um, let's say you take a stack of magazines with that kind of slick paper. That's kind of like a clay particle. They're actually, rather than being round or angular like a silt or sand particle, they're more like plates. And so you have a stack of magazines and then you push a little bit on those and they just slide across the floor. They slough off really easy. That's how a clay particle is going to work. If soon as it gets lubricated by moisture, it's going to slide on itself. And so sometimes you get a scenario where, and this is even true up against your foundation of your house, you have a hillside, you know, you got a natural angle, and I'm illustrating this to Andrew because it helps me think through it. So we have the angle of the hillside, and we want to create a retaining wall, and so we got that vertical face, and then we pile in soil behind that, but all of that soil, the backfill that we've created between our retaining wall and the slope of our hillside, that's on an angular plane. That's all sliding down and putting a ton of pressure on that retaining wall. So actually what you have to do in that case is dig down, so you create a vertical face on your, on your hillside behind the retaining wall, and then you install your soil and your backfill and compacted lifts up behind that, and thereby it breaks that, that plane, that, that angle. And so now we don't have clay particles or soil particles sloughing off um, and putting a lot of pressure behind that wall. So that's critical in, in constructing that wall. And, and this is all stuff you kind of have to think about in, in advance so you know you have the proper mindset and how you're going to lay this out. So those are some of the principles behind a retaining wall. The other one that's really critical is you need to relieve the pressure of water behind a wall. The soil and the hills are going to absorb a lot of rainfall and we know that you can drive by like a highway cut and you can look at the side of the hill where they've cut into the soil and you see water just pouring out of it. Yeah. Well, water creates a ton of pressure behind these walls. And if you don't have a way of relieving it, it just adds to the weight of the load. A lot of times our walls that we construct, well, I would say almost 100% of the walls that we construct in a landscape setting are what we call segmented retaining walls. So they're not a solid concrete pour. They have ways of water going through them. But even at that, you need to have a drainage system behind the wall to help filter out soil and and other things. 
And we do that by using a clean gravel column all the way up. We try to get about 8 to 12 inches of gravel, maybe more depending on the size of the wall, of clean gravel up behind that wall. And that filters the soil and allows it to relieve the water pressure. If we don't think that that is quite enough, we'll even install a drain tube at the base so that when water does get to the bottom of the wall, instead of pushing out the bottom of the wall, it can capture in that drain tube, just like a French-style drain. Yeah, and that's a perforated drain tube. Correct. It's not a solid one. Yep, Yep. something that the water can flow into and evacuate out. So those are some of the things that you'll want to think about if you're considering even doing a home installation of your own retaining wall. So now that we've kind of talked about some of the principles behind it and why we might construct it, we got to talk about the actual installation of it. Depending on the size of your wall, you're going to maybe want to dig down into the existing soil. And I would say this is the case 100% of the time because you want the footing of that wall to lock into undisturbed soil, what is already in place there, so that it doesn't push out. As a general rule of thumb, uh, some of the blocks that we use, a concrete block, are engineered or specified so that every eight inches of vertical rise, you want an inch below that soil, undisturbed soil surface. So if you're, um, it just as a, a general rule, let's say you're going up um, eight feet, which is 96 inches. So then you want, uh, let me think this through, I think you want, what, 12 inches below the, so- the soil surface, surface because you divide that by eight. So eight times 12 is 96 inches. Yep. Did I, I get through math, that? Okay. You got it. So an eight foot wall, uh, exposed vertical eight foot, you want an additional 12 inches below the soil surface. That's going to lock that into place. Below that course, then we need something compacted and level to lay our, our blocks on. And that's generally, we call it AB3. There's different uh, notations of what the product is called, but basically it's a three quarter inch rock with fine rock dust also included. So from three quarter inch all the way down to rock fines. And that really packs in really nicely. And we're able to level it with the amount of fine dust that's in there too. And you want a good level compacted base. And we're shooting in general for about six to eight inches of that compaction. So a nice six to eight inch gravel bed. Yeah. And that's a a crushed limestone Mm -hmm. product in our in our applications. And if it's a huge wall, we will get a tamper that right. runs with a, a motor. On a smaller one, we're using a steel tamp that yep. you just slam down. Yeah, so getting it that's n- a good point. Compacted. So like all the way from a miniature version of like what they call a sheep's foot, they're compacting highway beds. So you yeah. can rent a, rent a walk-behind version of that mm-hmm. um, to vibratory plates, to jumping jacks, all the way to the hand tamper. So it just depends on the scale of your wall. Yeah. And that base material can be regional. Like you said, right now we're using a crushed limestone because that's what's readily available and that's what's been tested and engineered over time. Um, but in other parts of the country, it might be a crushed granite or something different. Yeah. So once you've got your base material laid out, leveled, and you appropriately compacted, then you're ready to start stacking your block. And in general, you're going to start in the middle of the wall and work your way out so that if you have any grade changes, you can navigate that on the end of the wall. If it's all one solid straight line of a wall, you can work from one end to the other, no problem. But maybe you do a little bit of planning and diagramming before you get there so that you know where your low point of the wall is. That's where you can start and work your way out. 
we use several different types of material. The common ones, we use like a VersaLock block. That's a brand name. But in essence, it's 16 inches across from left to right, six inches tall and about a foot deep. And it's got grooves. It's got a, a, a pin system so that as you start working your way up, you set a natural batter back. And so it's a, uh, about three-eighths of an inch or so on each course as you go up. And the pins from the top course drop into a groove on the bottom course, and you just work your way up. It's foolproof almost. It basically is. Yeah, yeah it's yep. really handy because you just set your pins, and it puts your perfect spacing on those blocks. And as you go up, you want to offset your courses too. Correct. So you don't have seams that are lining up. You want to split those up. Yep. And any type of manufactured block should have that sort of principle built into it. Uh, if not, it's not going to probably give you the structure that you're looking for. So you might see concrete blocks with like a lug on the back that overhangs the back of the previous course. That does the same thing. So that's kind of what you're looking for as far as the mechanics of those blocks. Now, we also use a lot of natural limestone. It just fits in really well. It's readily available again, and they lay up really nicely because if you look at, again, if you're driving by a hillside cut on a highway, and you're going slow enough to actually look at the layers of rock, you'll notice that some layers of rock, uh, well, all the layers of rock are generally uniform. So some might be six inches thick, some might be nine inches thick, some 14, all, we use all the way up to eight, 18 inch thick blocks, and they just come out of the ground naturally, that thickness, so that when quarries are pulling them out, they can bust them up, and we know they're already a, just naturally a uniform thickness. So that's really handy, and we can stack those up in place using our equipment as well. And and usually in those larger applications, if you get to, well, let's back up. In all, any application, if you go above about three foot, you really need to use some other reinforcement. So we talked about how the soil works together and we can compact that behind the wall. There's also a product called GeoGrid or GeoFabric and GeoTextiles is really kind of the family of, of materials we're talking about. And that would lay into a course of the wall and then extend back into the grade of the soil as you're, as you're building up. Um, there's probably some good depictions of that online if you want to look at how geotextiles actually work and reinforce all of that. But in essence, it holds the lifts of soil in place much better than if you just compact it on its own. And again, that's for walls that are three to four foot and higher. You need to have that. And at that stage, you probably need to have somebody come and engineer the project because you don't want to get that wrong. <laughs> yeah, they, I've seen a couple of walls fail, either because the footing was bad yep. or, yeah, the geogrid was not installed correctly. Yeah, and interestingly enough, so if you look at a, a concrete wing wall off of a home, it's usually not very many years before you start to see little cracks and fissures in that poured concrete. And that's just because the soil behind it is moving and putting pressure. You look at a soil around here, spring versus summer versus fall, you start to see gaps opening up in the summer when it dries out, and you just see a lot of movement in the soils. It's, it's really kind of crazy. And you'll get that pressure pushing against the walls, and that eventually creates cracks and, and that sort of thing. With the segmented retaining walls that we build in a landscape application, because they're individual pieces, they can actually move a little bit with that soil fluctuation. And you want that because then you know that it has the integrity and the ability to hold that soil even while natural forces are going against it. And now all of a sudden you don't have a big crack in your wall. You already had a bunch of little segments and it can kind of 
flow as it needs to. So that's also a handy thing about segmented retaining walls that we use in a landscape application. Yeah, and the other thing about the segmented retaining walls is when you're laying your base, you want to have that perfectly level. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. as you go up, if you have it off one little bit, that problem's just going to exacerbate until yeah. it's really hard to deal with once you get a few courses up. And if you're going across a slope, I'm sorry, or like into a slope, mm -hmm. yep. you don't want to follow the grade. Correct. You still want to get your retaining wall level. So your blocks are level. Yep. And then to navigate that slope, you just simply step up your courses if you need to. If you want the top of your wall to appear like it's following grade to a certain degree, you're, you're going to have those little step ups, but you can stagger that up with the grade so that you're not creating a, a really tall wall all across the top. You can kind of follow that and terrace it or however you need to. You mentioned getting it perfectly level. Think about building Legos as a kid. If your bottom ones aren't snapped together, as you build, you get more and more gaps. You know, it's just harder mm -hmm. to snap every course after that. So make sure you get everything nice and tight as you're moving up. Yeah, and if we could just kind of finish up here and touch on the different types of materials that we do offer here at the nursery. Derek touched on it a little bit. The The Versalock blocks come in two different styles, mm -hmm. tumbled or weathered, and then standard. I prefer the look of the tumbled or the weathered because um, it's what I would call a little more natural, but you end up paying a little bit more for that too. Um, so with those, it is kind of more of a aesthetic choice. Do you agree? Correct. Yeah. It, if you're installing it yourself, it's a lot more forgiving because like a standard block, it's more or less an exact rectangle. So any of those little differences, whether it's in the manufacturing of the block itself, which you, there can be, I mean, you can't expect a poured concrete product to be exact down to the hair. So you're going to see a little bit of variance in that just in the product, but also when you install it, if you have just the tiniest little hair of a gap between blocks, you're going to really notice that whether, whereas with the weathered product that has been, it's basically the standard block, but it's been run through a tumbler, tumbled mm -hmm. all around. So it gets some rounded edges. You're not going to notice any of that. So it's a lot more forgiving on that side of thing. And we have a similar product in a natural stone. Um, the common sizes are a three and a half inch tall and a five inch tall tumbled limestone. And it's basically cut to specific dimensions and then again ran through a tumbler to get kind of a rounded or more field stone look. So we carry that product as well. And that's just a dry stack material yep. on that one. There's no interlocking pins or anything like that. So you need to make sure you've got your backfill done right. And like what yep. Derek was talking about earlier, getting your your columns in the back compacted correctly. Yep. And those that product is probably for anything that's like two foot or less in height. You can go higher than that, but that's where you start to use those geotextiles and things to help you out because they don't have a pen system to hold things in place. So you just have to go the extra mile with, with that product. And you can also help yourself out with the shape of the wall. A curved yep. wall is going to be stronger than a, a straight wall. Correct. Yep. And we have examples of those around the nursery, both of the Versalock and the, the the limestone. Yep. And then the upper end of that, like the larger limestone pieces we use, the common thickness we use now is 14 inch, but we use a lot of six inch thickness for stairs because it's just a natural mm -hmm. height. And again, that comes out of the ground at six inch thicknesses. So um, that's really handy. It just lays up really nice, but it's random sizes as far as the square footage of them. And we used to use a lot of, and we still use some, 9-inch thick limestone slabs. It's not as common anymore. So then we use a lot of the 14-inch, 
and then all the way up to 18 inch. We use that less for retaining walls because it's pretty big and bulky and blocky. And you think about big blocks taking those curves that Andrew was suggesting. Um, it's a little bit less in appearance, I guess. We use a lot of the 18 inch for sitting stones because you think of the height of a chair is usually you know 15 to 18 inches tall where you're sitting. That works really well for a nice natural sitting area. The cost involved with all of these, um, there's a range in cost, so that's one thing to consider as well. But usually the cost involved is um, on the develop the manufacturing of the product. You think of a natural stone, well, you just dig it out of the ground and it's everywhere. Well, that's true. They use really big equipment to, to pull that out of the ground. It has to be shipped on big trucks, and then it takes considerable equipment for us to place it too. So you think about that when you're thinking about your entire project and the cost involved, which is a fair thing to be looking at. You have a budget to work with. Um, that's where you realize what goes into those different products. And we talked about like the standard block versus a tumbled. Well, it's gone through an extra process of being tumbled and then again, probably hand stacked back onto a pallet because out of the manufacturing pro process, it can be poured and molded all in one automation. But then once you take that stack apart and throw it in a tumbler, <laughs> then you have to get the guys back involved. And that's all done uh, by the manufacturer, of course, but uh, that's where you see some of those cost differences. Yeah, and a standard Versalock block weighs 80 pounds. Yeah, and yeah. That's heavy. yeah they're no joke for sure. Yeah. Um, we've got a couple of guys here that uh, I'm always impressed when they use the block grabbers and they can grab two blocks with one grabber and then they do that in each hand. Yeah. It just blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. Like I struggle moving one around. So. Yeah. You don't, or you shouldn't do that very often. If you're looking at doing a large project, you'll wear yourself out pretty quick, you know, kind yeah. of the slow and steady <laughs> aspect is, but, but it is funny. You get on a job site and the guys get competitive and be like, all right, yeah, we're going to move some product today. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, when you're doing the retaining wall, those blocks are generally going to be only finished on one side. Uh, we may talk about sitting walls a little more when we talk about patios, but those will be finished on both sides uh, just so you, it looks pleasant on each, right. no matter which side you're looking at. It. That well, is one point. You know, We talked about doing some stair-step transitions as you're going maybe up a grade and stair-stepping into it. It makes a huge difference if you take just an extra little bit of time to maybe split a block to, so you have that fancy face. I call it a fancy face okay, <laughs> on, the, yeah. on the stair step up. Or there's ways to finish that off that just make a world of difference for the appearance of your wall, just a few little extra steps. So, um, And we can guide you on those type of things too if you're entertaining a project down the road. All right. Well, thank you very much, Derek. If you guys have any questions for us, shoot us an email at podcast at com, and we'll talk to you again in the future. Thanks.